Today is uh, Sunday the 5th of November 2023 um, and I'm calling this talk uh, Meeting Canaan. The email that went out the other day um, advertising this talk said something about I was going to um, share my insights about Canaan or something. Um, I wouldn't describe it quite that grandly. What I'd like to do is to um, share a little bit about the um, the, the little journey I've been on over the last year or so around compassion and uh, the Bodhisattva of Compassion Kanon and how my uh, the way I've related to Kanon has been uh, changing over that over that time. So the story begins last winter when like a lot of New Zealanders I got COVID-19 for the first time and like about roughly 10% of people who get COVID, I went on to develop um, long COVID. And I discovered when I had long COVID that there's quite a bit of confusion about what it really is. So just to be clear, um, having long COVID doesn't mean that you have COVID for a long time. Um, you get COVID, you, you get over the initial infection and then you more or less, and then you get a, a post-viral syndrome with often a, a different set of symptoms which do go on for a long time, um, typically <clears throat> months or, or years. And um, yeah, there's still not a lot known about how long COVID really works. There's a lot of research, well, there's more research going on now. Um, it's quite similar to chronic fatigue syndrome, which people have been having for um, ages. Um, but there hasn't been a lot of research done about that. Um, so there are a whole range of different symptoms that people get with long COVID. One of the most common ones is fatigue, really um, debilitating fatigue, extreme fatigue. There's a whole range of other things that people get with it. Um, irregular heart behaviour, um, problems with balance, brain fog, and a whole raft of other unpleasantness. And the fatigue, fatigue is the thing that I had. I was, I'm one of the relatively lucky ones. Fatigue was the main symptom that I had. So I would, uh, I would have fatigue, I would rest, start feeling a bit better, eventually start um, doing a few things again. And then at a certain point would have um, a crash where my energy level would go back to, to zero, back to square one. So it's like this, this game of snakes and ladders, um, except there weren't any ladders, there were only snakes, and you didn't, you didn't know where they were until you stepped on one. There was no real telling what would cause one of these crashes um, until, until afterwards, <laughs> when it was too late. So, uh, yeah, as I say, I was one of the luckier ones where my symptoms were really just limited to fatigue, but it was still very debilitating especially for someone like me who's used to being quite physically active uh, and it was quite life-limiting in that I just couldn't do really any of the things that I normally do. Um, I managed to keep working most of the time from home but really nothing much else apart from that. Uh, another thing which is very common with long COVID is anxiety. Um, this is thought to be probably an actual primary symptom of the illness. So um, 
most people's long COVID get some anxiety of some sort. On top of that, there's all the uncertainty about whether you're ever going to get your life back and do the things that you used to be able to do, uh, which for a lot of people causes a whole lot of extra anxiety as well. So I definitely had um, a lot of anxiety. So by the end of 2022, last year, <clears throat> the anxiety had gotten quite bad. Um, I was having a lot of insomnia, sometimes waking up in the night, having panic attacks. Um, and yeah, last Christmas I'd gone away on holiday, a very, very low-key holiday, <laughs> just going to visit family and um, hoping that I'd have a, have a nice quiet time and feel, feel rested afterwards and maybe be able to go on Sushin in early 2023. I unfortunately had a, <clears throat> another major fatigue crash while I was on holiday uh, and um, spent the whole holiday in bed. Um, so I was not able to go to the Sushin in January. But for about the last three or four days of it, I was doing a sort of solo retreat at home, just um, as much as I could manage, and just sort of feeling my way in terms of my energy levels to see how much I could do. Um, and I wound up doing a reasonable amount of sitting, uh, and Roshi was emailing me the Taisho's recordings every day, uh, which, which helped a lot. And the, yeah, this, uh, doing the extras I was in at that point was really helpful. And um, I found at the end, at the, I, I finished at the same time as the session was ending and found that, oh, I need some kind of a closing ceremony for this little, <laughs> little retreat of mine. And so I just did a little bit of chanting as we normally do and um, finished with um, prostrations and, and bowing to the Buddha figure at home and just found... Um, unexpectedly, while I was bowing to the Buddha at the end of this, um, a sudden sense came over me uh, of, oh, it's, it's going to be okay now. Um, and I didn't know where that had come from uh, or really what to do with it because with all these cycles of fatigue uh, and, and crashing, having these unexpected fatigue crashes, after, after that's happened enough times, you distrust any kind of sense of hope um, because it just becomes too disappointing when you hope that you're finally getting better and then find you're not. So after enough of that, you, you really don't trust any kind of sense of hope that you might have had, which, <laughs> which is, is difficult. But um, So I wasn't sure what to do with this, um, this different sort of sense that I had at the end of my little retreat that I, that I felt like, oh, it's going to be all right now. Um, so um, I just sort of kept being very cautious and it turned out that <clears throat> the this, this sense that I had was in fact correct. I was, uh, I did get better at that point and um, didn't have any more fatigue crashes. <clears throat> uh, so I started feeling better and returning slowly to normal life. And, uh, however, the, the anxiety that I was having continued. Um, I was still being quite cautious about not overdoing things, not having more crashes. Um, a lot of the anxiety that I was having was around, you know, the prospect of crashing again and going back to square one. Um, so that whole anxiety really continued. So around the end of January, 
I decided I had to do something about this and I decided to have some counselling. Um, and I initially I went into the counselling with the attitude of I wanted to get some sort of tools and strategies to help me deal with the anxiety. Uh, but uh, I was very lucky to find a counsellor I had a kind of immediate rapport with, which was very good. Um, and uh, it soon became clear the way we were working that it looked like the, the roots of this anxiety were a bit deeper than I had thought. It wasn't just about the illness. Um, it was a kind of... Uh, I had, a, I had a, a level of sort of habitual anxiety there which I didn't really understand very well and I wasn't really going to get any relief from my anxiety without really having a good look at that. Uh, so that's what we've been doing and so the whole process turned out to be different from what I expected uh, and slower and, and longer. Um, I'm, still, I'm still having the counselling, although less often, um, and it's all turned out to be a lot more interesting than I had anticipated. I, I had had some sense already that I tend to be quite hard on myself a lot. And the, uh, through the counselling, um, we, we came to identify that I've had a lack of compassion for myself uh, for a long time. And especially when things get tough, when things are really difficult and I could probably do with more compassion, <laughs> I, that's when I tend to be hardest on myself. Um, so all of that started to become clear through this process of the counselling, which was very helpful and, and really interesting. One way that I've been um, sort of thinking about this whole, uh, the roots of this uh, anxiety and and lack of self-compassion is with a, a kind of a kind of internal character that I created at some point when I was growing up, um, and I and I call this character Angry Dad. Um, <laughs> so I would hasten to add, it's nothing, no reflection on my actual dad, who's not like this at all. But um, I had an image of a child uh, playing, say, football or something, and an angry father on the, on the, standing on the sidelines shouting out all kinds of discouraging <laughs> and critical um, feedback. Ah, no good at all. Ah, oh, no, what are you doing that for? <laughs> no good. Ah, oh, do it again. No, that's not good enough. Not good enough. Have to try harder. That kind of thing. So that's the sort of thing that Angry Dad comes up with. So uh, in March of, of this year, we had a term intensive <coughs> which I decided to take part in. And I thought, okay, well, if um, one, thing I'm, uh, one thing I need to work on is this self-compassion, um, perhaps I should do some extra practice related to compassion. And so I decided to do every day um, a kind of meditation called um, Metta Bhavana, which is, it's not really emphasised much in Zen. It is emphasised more in other kinds of Buddhism like Theravada and Tibetan Buddhism. And it's a um, cultivation of um, loving kindness, which is the way in English um, uh, Sanskrit metta is usually translated. So metta is 
really the desire for beings to be happy. Um, and it's not exactly the same as compassion, but very closely related. So compassion is, um, you can just say, is uh, the desire for beings to be free from suffering. And so it's, it's kind of complementary or very closely related things, not, not exactly the same. So this metta bhavana, it's traditional, the way the, way the meditation works in a classical um, form is you have sort of a number of stages through a round of zazen, um, say five stages is a, is a um, typical one. First stage, you concentrate on contacting and, and cultivating uh, feelings of loving kindness towards yourself. The second stage, you take that sense of loving kindness that you've found and uh, extend it towards a friend. Um, the third stage, the same thing with someone who's uh, neutral. You don't really have any kind of positive or negative feelings. Might be someone you saw on the street or someone in a shop. Um, and the fourth stage, someone that you have difficulty with. And in the final stage, extending that out to all beings. So that's the, the metta practice. And I decided I would do this practice for the term intensive every day. First round of every day, I would do this instead of my, um, my main practice. And so I did that and found it very helpful. And uh, at the end of the term intensive, I thought, okay, well, maybe I don't have to do this every day now. Maybe I'll just do it sometimes. And so I tried doing that and then found, oh, no, I actually really like doing it every day. <laughs> I think I need to do that. So, in fact, I've carried on doing it every day ever since. I'm still doing it. Um, finding that very helpful as a way of contacting um, metta and compassion, particularly for myself. Um, sometime during the year, I thought, okay, well, I've got this sort of internal parent character, angry dad. <laughs> um, I created him at some point. Maybe I could create another character to sort of balance his influence um, some sort of a, I don't know, sort of a, perhaps a kind of kindly grandmother figure or something like that. Um, and then I realised, oh, well, in Buddhism we have these bodhisattva figures. And these are kind of personifications of particular qualities, um, or archetypes, you might say. Um, for example, compassion. So we have kanon, or, or kuan yin in the Chinese I'll kind of switch between the Chinese and Japanese kanon and kuan yin. Um, I hope that doesn't um, confuse anyone. But um, so we have these bodhisattvas like kanon. Uh, oh well, maybe that's how we can relate to these these bodhisattva figures, perhaps like uh, characters within ourselves, like like Angry Dad. <laughs> uh, so I thought about how I'd related to Kanon up to that point and realised that I hadn't actually related to Kanon, so images of, of Kanon, uh, on a sort of emotional level. It had been a little bit abstract, uh, a little bit distant. Um, it's more just a sort of an idea rather than a felt sense of compassion. Um, and I wondered whether, oh, maybe this is partly because the images we have of Kanon are 
mostly from China or Japan. Maybe it's a sort of a cultural difference. Perhaps the way they portray Kanon is, um, doesn't quite sort of um, resonate for me or something. And I started to think, okay, well, if I was creating an image of Kanon, what would it look like? What does Kanon look like for me? Uh, so I sort of pondered that um, and just sort of sat with it. As the, <clears throat> the year went by, uh, my anxiety about having uh, more fatigue crashes started to diminish because I realised I hadn't had one for a long time and it looked like I was actually getting better. Um, I still feel slightly still feel slightly dangerous even saying that <laughs> but um, yeah the reality is I have not had any more fatigue crashes um, since early early earlier this year and so yeah my anxiety around that has diminished quite a lot however um, the other thing that's been going on for me this year is I had a big work project on which turned out to be quite stressful and had a, a deadline at the end of September which um, as that started to approach uh, this project and my work began to take over as the main trigger for my anxiety. Um, and Angry Dad started to <laughs> pop up more and more around my work. Um, and so, yeah, my, my sort of sleep started to deteriorate a bit again. And... Uh, around August, um, yeah, in August, sometime in August, I was sitting in the morning one day trying to do my metta bhavna and feeling a lot of turmoil and um, uh, anguish um, in the midst of it and trying to contact a sense of compassion and, and metta in, the, in amongst all of that and feeling quite desperate. Uh, I found myself kind of involuntarily calling out at, at one point uh, just to myself, you know, in, in, inside my own mind. Kuan Yin, where are you? And to my surprise, um, there was a reply. Um, straight away, a voice in my mind said, I am here. And this really stopped me in my tracks. Um, I realised at that point that I had still been perhaps thinking of Kanon as something a little bit outside of myself. And this really brought it home. Oh, Kanon is actually, it is really part of me and, and is here, uh, right here, available all the time. Um, we don't have to look anywhere else for Kanon. Um, Kanon is available. Our, our compassionate heart is, is right here all the time. Um, and the, the way I'd been sort of trying to f think about, oh, what does, what does Kanon look like? I realised, ah, oh, <laughs> Kanon looks like us. Uh, no one else. 
Um, I was reminded of Master Hakwin's words, you know, outside us, no Buddhas. I'm here. And this, this I am here is also the essence of mindfulness as well. It's when we, when we uh, in the present moment, mindful of what is happening, that is what we're doing. I am here. And also, in a way, the essence of compassion. When we, you know, kanon, the, the word kuan yin, kuan shi yin, and in the Chinese means uh, the one who hears the cries of the world and responds to those cries, I'm here, I'm here. Another thing I was reminded of was uh, about 20 years ago, a friend of mine was dying of cancer and <clears throat> I was visiting him regularly in the hospice in his last days. Um, and I didn't really know what to do to try and help him. And after he died, I had been a bit sort of haunted for a while by the sense that, oh, Maybe there's something else that I could have done that would have helped him more, you know. Um, I wasn't sure what, but you know, I had the sense of, of that. And partly it was kind of angry dad again. <laughs> you know, oh, not good enough, not good enough. Should have done more. Um, so after, after this, uh, this little meeting with Kanon, <laughs> I, I realised, oh, well, perhaps, perhaps I am here is actually enough. Um, I was there for him, for my friend, and um, maybe that was the best thing. Maybe that was all. I mean, it, I did what I knew how to do. What more could I do? Maybe that was enough. Uh, so, um, in September of this year, we had another term intensive, and... I decided for this one to do some study around the Kanzeon Sutra and try to understand that and look at different translations and um, try and understand uh, more of the meaning of that, which I did and was very interesting. I'm not going to go into that right now. Uh, <clears throat> one thing, another thing I did was <coughs> a bit of other study around Kanon and I read a book <coughs> which Richard recommended to me uh, by a guy called John Blofeld, Blofeld um, <clears throat> who was an Englishman who developed a bit of a fascination for um, Kuan Yin and wound up uh, living quite a long time in China and visiting a lot of monasteries and doing a lot of travel within the country trying to find out more about Kuan Yin. And he's, in his earlier days particularly, I think, he seemed to have this conception of Kuan Yin as um, a bit like a sort of deity or a goddess, um, perhaps I think um, something a bit outside of himself that he had to sort of find somewhere. Uh, and he had this question about Kuan Yin, uh, is she real? Was what he asked himself, is, is Kuan Yin real? Uh, so he was living in China um, quite a lot of his life and, and uh, looking around trying to answer this question. And I'm going to read a couple of little stories from his book, uh, quite short. Um, 
One is from a time when he was living at a monastery and went to uh, a nearby temple where they were having a, a Kuan Yin um, ceremony one night. And he went to the ceremony and was very inspired by it and came back late at night to the monastery where he was staying. And he says, uh, The great courtyard was in darkness, the monks being still away, celebrating the festival, or else retired to their cells to sleep or meditate until summoned for the morning rite an hour before dawn. Noticing that lamps still glimmered in the deserted shrine hall, I felt a sudden impulse to enter and make my way round behind the Buddha statues to where it was customary in Chinese monasteries to house a statue of Kuan Yin. There she was, standing upon a shelf at about the level of my chest. It was an image of fine bronze some three feet high, with the right hand raised in benediction. Lighting fresh incense, I stood before her in silence until, suddenly carried away by exultation, I whispered, Compassionate one, be pleased to speak and convince me of your reality. How foolish this must sound and how ashamed I should be to write of it, were it not for the sequel. <coughs> Even with the words upon my lips, I reflected that a sane man should know better than to attempt holding converse with a statue. As it turned out, no justification was needed, for the plain truth is that the statue answered me at once, saying, Look not for my reality in the realm of appearances or in the void. Seek it in your own mind. There only it resides. I wish I could make the story even more extraordinary by affirming that the bronze lips moved, that the beautifully moulded throat gave forth melodious sounds. It was not so. No sound or movement stirred the silence. The enigmatic words entered my consciousness as thought forms, but so palpably that not even sound itself could have made the effect more electrifying or the sequence more precise. It's hard to believe that at a time when my knowledge of Mahayana Buddhism was so slight, I could have summoned such pronouncement from within myself. I did not really know then what the first sentence meant. Look not for my reality in the realm of appearances or in the void. So I was very interested to read this little story um, after the little encounter that I'd had <laughs> one day. Um, and also just thinking about how his conception of Kuan Yin seemed to be changing in a, in a way that was a bit similar to, to, to the way I'd found it changing in myself, finding that Kuan Yin is in our own mind and, and not some kind of outside figure. There's another story from later on, I think, when he was in China, He was uh, doing a boat trip on a river um, and he says, Among my fellow passengers was a black-gowned, shaven-headed, wizened little person who looked so wise that one might easily suppose him a great Tripitaka master rather than an ordinary monk. Inspired by this man's charm, 
In the magic of the extraordinary surroundings, I spoke to him freely of the affinity that had drawn me to Kuan Yin. My doubts about the claims made in some of the texts recited in her honour, and my being baffled by the varying accounts of her true nature. Having listened attentively, he replied, You think too much. Then, holding up a lotus flower, he had picked at dawn for his devotions, he exclaimed, Kuan Yin is here, in front of your nose, smell! Though he said no more on the subject, <clears throat> I recognised that one sentence as the most impressive sermon I'd ever heard. So, again, um, yeah, just the way his conception of Kuan Yin was, was changing, it kind of resonated for me as well. So where, where am I up to now with all of this? Well, um, I found with all of the stuff that's been going on over the past year, I do now have um, an emotional response to the image of, of Kuan Yin, which I didn't have before, Kanon. Um, if I see an image of Kuan Yin, uh, it does, it can at least, evoke a sense of, a felt sense of compassion um, within me. And even just visualising an image of Kanon can do that. Um, and this can be really helpful when things are difficult and, uh, and when Angry Dad might be uh, around to, um, to, you know, just to visualise Kuan Yin and contact that sense that our compassionate heart is really present in us at every moment. It's also brought a different sort of dimension to my, my main practice, my koan practice. There's a sort of warmth in that now which wasn't present before. And in fact, I realise now that Angry Dad has in fact been on a lot of sessions with me, <laughs> telling me I need to work harder and what I'm doing is not good enough. <laughs> so this... Yeah, this new sense of warmth in my, in my main practice is, I think, very, very helpful for me anyway. So, yeah, Angry Dad is still here, but I have a sense now that he's no longer alone. Well, that's all I have. Um, we have a few minutes if anyone has any questions or comments. Um, Adrian, um, that was a really uh, moving talk, actually. I really touched, touched something inside me. Thank you. One thing I've got found that um, I've got um, inside me angry, anger at when I see what's happening in the world. Mm. Mm. And uh, yeah, when you mess about, then it might be a good practice. Yeah. 
Mm. I remember you talking before, perhaps in some other term intensive, about uh, you know what do we do with you know when we see injustice in the world, and what do we and we feel angry about it? What should we do? Is that wrong, or what? How do we work with that? Um, and um, yeah, I don't have any answer to that really, but uh, I think you're probably right. I mean, it could at least balance. Um, that sense. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that's um, you know the sense of of Kuan Yin saying, "I'm here." Uh, this, the, it's it's left me with a sense of, you know, there's no time when compassion is not appropriate. Through the day comes on. Through the night comes on. You know, that's what that's telling us that. Uh, we can we can contact our compassion twenty four seven, and there's no time when it's not the right thing. Mm. And I think there's no doubt when we meet Kanan. I mean, I'm thinking of a woman who's unfortunately I can't remember her name, the Israeli elder who shook hands with the the Hamas. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm, mm, yeah. Oh well, yeah. This you know this term intensive we just had. Uh, the whole Israeli-Palestinian conflict sort of blew up in the middle of that, and um, you know, I don't think there's any greater demonstration than that of the need for compassion. Uh, you couldn't wish for a more graphic demonstration of that. I think. Mm. Yes, oh, that's right, yeah. Yeah. Shameful parts of mm, mm. worthy parts. Mm, mm. And compassion for Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Okay, well, we're about, about out of time. Oh. I'll just say there's a really beautiful scroll of quite many people who are looking on the way up on the Zendo just out there at the moment. Yes. <laughs> Any other comments or questions? Yeah, I would just say um, Jung would say that anxiety is part of human condition mm, mm. Um, from the time we're born mm. and released from the womb. Mm. We have anxiety about being abandoned, mm, mm. abandoned or being overwhelmed. Mm sensory input mm. in the environment and it's how we deal with that mm. Mm. that uh, the balance yeah. established in ourselves yeah. is um, how we how we eventually live come to terms with that mm. in a in a uh, positive way. Mm. But it is part of the initial human condition. Mm. You would say mm. you had mm. a lot of Mm. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, and being able to embrace that anxiety with the warmth, mm. the warmth and the compassion of Kanon. Is, you know where it comes from. Yeah.
Yeah. Thank you. I would just like to thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, well, we'll leave it there and um, recite the four vows. All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.